This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Ronnie Khan, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I'm incredibly excited to yeah, talk I am with too. you about a repurposed life. Yeah, I'm really, really excited too. I mean, just such an interesting life. Ronnie is a South African-born Australian social entrepreneur and founder of the food rescue charity Oz Harvest. She's an advocate lobbyist and an activist renowned for distributing the food waste landscape in Australia. She appears regularly in national media, serves as an advisor to government and is a keynote speaker all over the world. Her mission towards sustainable action is supported through close collaborations with some of the world's finest chefs, including Jamie Oliver, Massimo Batura, Yes. Neil Perry and Bill Granger. Ronnie is an officer of the Order of Australia, congratulations, and was named Local Hero of the Year in 2010. In 2018, her journey became the subject of a feature film, Food Fighter, directed by Dan Goldberg. Ronnie's memoir, which is what we're talking about today, A Repurposed Life, is the story of how Ronnie found her voice, her heart and her deepest calling. I love that line. It's beautiful. Well, thank you. You know, I feel so privileged to have tapped into something within me that could translate into making a difference. But I really, truly believe that each and every one of us has a true calling. It's inside of us. It's not out there. And I guess what I really hope when people read the book is that it inspires them to to find what it is that really brings them the most joy and gives them an ability in their life. Do you know what struck me with reading your book is where you talk about taking a reduction in salary. I think it was a phenomenal number you were earning and then you were earning phenomenally less. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> Yeah, and, it was uh, a big deal. <laughs> it was a big deal. It's a really big deal. And that has happened to me in my career. I left a really big job and started my own business. Um, I actually bought a house and yeah. then left and then started my own business. Yeah. But also recently I was, I was at dinner somewhere and somebody asked me if I was rich. And firstly, I think that that's a, a crazy question. But, really? you know, I thought, yeah, I thought about it for a minute. And I thought, yeah, no, I am. I am really rich because... I have so much. I have family. I have friends. I've got a modest little apartment and I feel quite rich in my life. Uh, I'm, sh- I'm sure that that's not where she was going. But how do you measure? I mean, how, how do you measure that kind of success? Well, there's absolutely no doubt that there was a time in my life that I measured wealth by, by the money that one had. And I took for granted the magnificent children I have and the wonderful friends, and I didn't see them as the richest part of what I have. 
And it really took the humbling experience of being in the wrong relationship. And it took many years of getting, working through so many elements of my life to realize that I had everything I needed and that the way that I could feel the richest was the more I gave away, the more I got. Mm. Because it's right there. That's what you're saying. Like it's right there. Sometimes we're so busy doing other things that we forget that what we have and what we need is right there. Absolutely. And we look at other people and we envy their lives and we envy what they've achieved and we envy what they're going through even if it's not even so conscious, you know, it's, there, there is so many people seem to have so much status on so many different levels. And we forget that, you know, we're beloved, we're beloved parent, we're a beloved child, we're a beloved friend, we're a beloved colleague, we contribute in so many ways. And so many of us don't value the contribution we make and think if only I was this or if only I was that. And I think that line that I quote in the book, that Robin Sharma line, that we are all leaders without titles Mm. is really so incredibly powerful Mm. because it does give us the ability to say, well, you know what, if I'm this in this role, how can I be the very best in that role? And that's mm. really what I hope my book reinforces is that when we can be the very best we can be in whatever it is we're doing, that can be fulfillment enough. Mm. I want to go back to the start because, you know, our podcast is called Stories Behind the Story. So how did you come to us and how did you come to us to write this book? So I want to go way back to yeah. growing up. So if you asked me in a gazillion years, if I would ever, if we start, go to the end, if I'd ever write a book, if I'd ever have people make a film about me, if I'd ever run a charity, if I'd ever even run my event business, if I'd ever, I would have said, that's somebody else you're talking about. I didn't think I was ambitious. (laughs) And I grew up with really quite modest aspirations, especially given the fact that, you know, I came from a very simple family and one that once almost tragedy affected our family, all the expectations around my parents' lifestyle changed and we grew up with that shadow that you get a job, you work hard and you just be a good citizen and you go through your life. But that didn't happen. <laughs> that didn't happen. It did, well, it did and it didn't. It, it never happened. <laughs> so you grew up in South Africa? Yeah, I grew up in South Africa, children of two South African-born South Africans. And I say that because being Jewish, the Jewish nation is really one of immigrants and one of huge um, migration. And my grandparents fled from Eastern Europe at different times um, because Jews were always persecuted in so many different countries. And my parents were born in South Africa. And so I was second generation South African, but during the apartheid era, which then had another whole lens to it. Mm. And staying there, if you wanted to be a 
as human as you could and be liberal meant you couldn't just accept the status quo. And so it was almost acceptable to my parents that although they had grown up in South Africa, that perhaps their children wouldn't, given what had happened politically in South Africa. As a child, were you aware of the politics no. or other? Were you just a child growing up? I was just a child growing up, but you couldn't not be aware that, you know, growing up in South Africa during the apartheid era, there were two colours, black and white. And you couldn't not be aware of the fact that being white, I was privileged. And being black meant you didn't live the same life that I did. And we knew that. Of course we knew that. And we saw the pain. But you do come to be a little blindfolded because you just get on with your life. That's what happens. You get dulled. Your senses get dulled to some extent. But I was fortunate because my parents put me in a Jewish youth movement, which very much was about social justice. They put me in a liberal school, which very much, as much as was possible, espoused equality. Mm. And so was your education in South Africa? Talk to me about that. Yes, I finished school in South Africa and left. I finished my high school. I turned 17 in September and that January... I was on a plane leaving because I got a scholarship to study university in Israel. Oh, wow. And many, and my parents really didn't have the money to send me to university in Israel. So there was that double whammy. Yeah. You go. Yeah, but you had the smarts, so you won the scholarship. Well, it wasn't, to be fair, I have to, I have to admit, it wasn't so much winning a scholarship it was they offered scholarships because they did want to populate and and encourage Western young Jewish people to come to live in Israel okay. or to and go so, to university in Israel. So I never thought I had smarts. I no. never did. No, okay. I never considered myself particularly. Absolutely no smarts at all. <laughs> no, I don't I believe it for a second. I never had any smarts. It appears I have some skills, but yeah. I never thought I had smarts. <laughs> Not sure I believe that. But anyway, so what was that experience of landing? Like you're 17 years old and you land, where, whereabouts in Israel do you go? Well, Tell me about we, that. I mean, well, that must be a shock. It was a humongous shock. Seriously, one I'd been covered cosseted. I was the baby of the family. I was so spoiled. I didn't eat you know, my mother pandered to my eating habits. I wasn't great at sleeping out. Yeah. And I get on a plane the first time I'm ever on an airplane, the first time I'm ever away from home for a significant amount of time. And it's sort of for real. It's not like I could get on a plane and come back. Nobody could afford that. It was total alienation together with huge excitement of being... <laughs> alone, independent, but really not fully, not fully even owning that I was ready to be independent. Well, at 17, that's quite young. It's pretty young, especially in that South African life was very protected. So here you are, whereabouts were you in Israel? So for the first six months, I actually landed up on a kibbutz because we needed to hone our skills in Hebrew. I was with a group of other kids. Right. 
Good. Um, and then I went straight to the university uh, in Jerusalem, the yeah. Jerusalem University, which is a very cosmopolitan, extraordinary campus, but again, still very alienated, very new, and yeah, just trying to find my feet. And would you say that you thrived in that environment? What would be, how would you describe that time? You know, I think, I think I was so scrambling to just, I hadn't even worked out who I was, not to mention what it would be like living away from home. So there was a lot of adaption, adaptation, and I loved it. I did love it, and clearly I grew up very quickly (laughs) and did adapt because, in fact, I never went back to live in South Africa. I never lived with my parents again. From 17. I mean, that's, you know, very early. And what you need to know, Cheryl, is that we came from the warmest, most close, intimate family that, in hindsight, I used to say to my mother, how did you let me go? Yeah. I never let my children go at 17. (laughs) I tried to them for as long as I could. Well, kids are staying home now until they're 30, you know. They're 40. Yeah. I mean, if you go at 17 now, there's something wrong. wrong. Exactly. (laughs) Okay, so you thrived in that environment. Were you homesick at all? Of course I was. I had also left my boyfriend. Oh, right. And he was my serious boyfriend. I mean, you know, at 17, goodness that that should be your serious boyfriend, but he he is the man I married. Oh, Um, wow. So there was being away from him and being away from home and everything I knew into an incredibly foreign environment. Yeah. Going to the Middle East is not like even going to, you know, had I come to Australia at that time, there are a lot of familiarities between a colonial Western country to another. Yes. But I went to the Middle East, which was very different. Yeah. So what did you come out as university thinking you were going to be? Well, I went to university studying history of art and English, and it seemed very obvious that I should do teaching. And I did about three minutes of the the teaching course, and the first practical walked into a classroom of absolutely wild crazy Israeli kids and I thought there is no way in a million years I gave that up within about three minutes Ronnie I had exactly the same experience that's amazing I I went to teachers college thinking you know here and I went to my first prac and I was stunned at how awful the kids were. I, I mean, there was nothing wrong with them, but that just exactly. wasn't for me. Exactly. And even the smell of walking into a classroom. And then, do you know what hit me? It's like, I can never go out to lunch. Like, I'm <laughs> stuck in this room. And, do you know, my prac teacher picked up on it and she said, maybe you want to go upstairs and work in the bookshop. And that's how my book career started. Oh, my God. Yeah, well, mine was, this isn't, there is no way. My creativity, my... Any part of me could not be put into that square, and I, did, I honestly lasted five minutes. Mm. And by then, my then boyfriend had come to live in Israel. He had chosen to go and live on a kibbutz. And because I didn't really know anything different, I went to live on the kibbutz. Mm. Describe what that's like. It's a phenomenally fascinating society. It's a society where people have come together because they've chosen to live 
in a framework that is based on equality and socialism. I mean, the roots of the kibbutz movement are communism and Russian communism and socialism, even though those are not the same things, but it, it, the kibbutz movement is based on socialist living. And were you political at the time? Were you all, No, no you weren't making a statement. No, I didn't go there because I was political. I went there because my boyfriend went to live there and I thought, I'll give it a bash, yeah. as one does. And it's a fascinating society and there are rules and regulations around it. And people have to work, there's, there's, and it's all rotation. All of those roles around running the kibbutz are rotated. So people get an opportunity to be the ones in charge if they choose to be. I was told I needed to work in a kid's house with kids. And that was a challenge. It was my first biggest challenge on kibbutz because one, men had different choices so there was I ironically in a very socialist society that definitely discriminated against females and gave them female roles stereotypical female roles mm. um, so I didn't enjoy that at all eventually I landed up in the accounts department and but quite honestly the restrictions around that society became too limiting for me I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Did you get married there and have your child there? Yeah, got married there, had my child, children there. And for children, it is an extraordinary society. You're living from six weeks on, you're in a little group with five kids, then it becomes 10 kids, and then you're at school with those kids. It's amazing. But what about the family unit? So the family unit is there, but there's a communal dining room, and then the family unit gets... So the family unit... In, on the kibbutz I chose to live on and we chose was the kids slept at home. There were many kibbutz, there are many kibbutzim where the children from the time they were born actually lived in a kid's house. What's the thinking behind that? The thinking behind that is that the group, the group has much better education for um, that people grow up societally better if they're in in a commune type of arrangement so there's no chance the of helicopter parents, parents were not necessary <laughs> the parents would visit but it wasn't the parents who were educating them yeah in a way it was 
kind of brainwashing if you think about it because they would be the kids not in our kibbutz but from an early age were given the kind of idealistic society that the group thought would be the best way to bring up kids. And how old was your child when you left? Uh, nine. Nine. Oh, wow. That's a long time, isn't it? Yeah. And why did you leave? We left because I felt stifled and I felt... It's interesting because in my later years, I chose to turn challenges into the best way of giving back. And on kibbutz, I didn't feel that I wanted to take on any of those responsible roles. I didn't want to shift and change behavior there. And so I felt best, it was functioning so well for all the people who lived there, better for me to leave. And, and, and if you've chosen to live in an alternate lifestyle, you always have the norm to go back to. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. When you're in a normal lifestyle, it's much harder to go alternate. But if you've done it, you can always leave. And yeah. so it felt like we needed to go back to try living our own lives, responsible for our own finances, responsible for our own education, responsible for our own social lives. That must be scary when you first leave because then all of a sudden you're on your own and you're starting all over again. Well, starting all over as a family, we'd never lived and we'd never had to make money. We'd never had, in fact, the very first time we went to the supermarket, neither myself nor my husband had a wallet because we just didn't think about it because on our little kibbutz shop, you didn't yeah. need money. There was a little token or a little book and, and you only bought luxuries in that shop. So it took us a while to get really organized around the economics of living in the real world. And we had very little money. And what was your first job out of Kabul? I was very lucky. My sister's husband had just bought a florist. Right. Whereabouts? In Haifa. Yeah. Which is a port city, a beautiful city. He bought that florist. And we never understood why he bought it. He was a doctor of economics. I think he'd had a fantasy about running a shop. At some point, he bought Flowers it. are beautiful. Exactly. Flowers are beautiful. Do you know how many people have said to me, oh, I want to work in a florist shop because it's so beautiful. Yes. And I always say, if you've ever cleaned out one vase in your home yes. and struggled with the smelly, yucky water, imagine that by a hundred every single day. <laughs> yeah, my sister, my sister um, owned uh, Glebe Florist for many, many years. Okay. Yeah. So I would often help her. But it's the yeah. same when you work in a bookshop too. You of know, course. people. Yeah, of course, people. So beautiful. Yeah, yeah. They, and they think you read all day. You know exactly. So you worked at a florist. So he had bought a florist, which by the time, just perfect timing when I left the kibbutz, the person he'd bought the florist with, my sister had, he'd already left the, didn't want to have anything to do with it. So my sister was in it with a friend and that person had just decided she was leaving the florist. So I'd never touched a flower. I'd never been in business. And my sister said, you, you can come and work with me. And it turned out to be a phenomenal medium for me. I loved flowers. I was good at arranging them. And turned out I wasn't so bad at business either. Did you know that or did you, that kind of came organically as you were working there? It came organically. And I think what I've now come to realize, I step into things without fear in that somehow I've taken on things that 
I'd never, I've never done before and just have a, have a sense that it'll be okay. Mm, mm. <laughs> and I, either it's a naivety or it's stupidity or it's just blind faith, but it certainly has served me through my life. I was thinking about uh, leadership and I was talking to a friend about it, my friend Mary recently, and she articulated it in a way that I've never thought about it because I guess for me, I'm, I'm similar in that I've, I was never happy at a certain level. I was always wanting to work up. You wouldn't have called me ambitious, but I was interested. I was, you know, okay, once, yeah, curious. Once I kind of mastered that level, I was interested in the next level and the next level. And we were talking, Mary and I, and she said, you can't quell leadership. You've either got it or you don't do you agree with that you know I do I think I think you can learn skills yes but I think there's an attitude yes an attitude of of curiosity and of willing to take a risk and of willing to to really actually put yourself out there are the skills that are hard to learn yeah, they are, aren't they? Yeah. Okay, so let's fast forward. How did you get to Australia and why Australia? So Australia, my then husband's brother had immigrated from South Africa to Australia. Okay. So when we reached that point that we needed to leave Israel and we needed to leave Israel for a couple of reasons, one politically and two, I had two boys and, you know, we'd had tragedy in our lives and in Israel, there's military conscription, there's compulsory. And I knew that if I left, if we were going to leave, I needed to leave before my boy turned 14. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, for the rest of his life, he could never put his foot back in Israel without being conscripted and he would be called to the army. And so I had a sister who by then lived in America but I never wanted to bring my kids up in America. I just didn't. Mm. And so Australia seemed like, okay, well, let's go there. And what was your first impression? Did you come to Sydney? We came to Sydney because that's where they lived. And I just adored it. Mm. First of all, it did feel familiar. Mm. In a way, it felt very similar to my upbringing in South Africa. Obviously, with, but without the overt racial challenges. Yes, we still have our own racial challenges. We do, and I'm the first person to know that, um, but overt. Yes. Um, and so it just felt amazing and like, yep, we again, you know, I didn't question whether we would succeed or not. There wasn't a question of not succeeding. We also, again, had very limited money. And it wasn't like we could come and give it a bash. It was give it a bash and make it work. Mm. This this was the option. And so fast track again, you actually ended up in quite a successful career and you were earning quite a bit of money. And then you started, tell me how Oz Harvest came about. Well, it came about because I did reach a point in my life that I wanted to know why I was created. Very simply. I'd been through a lot. I'd been through different relationships. I'd been through, I'd left my first marriage. I'd been in a significant second relationship that had a huge impact on me. I'd chased money and realized that money is nothing without values and was questioning who I was and where I wanted to be and what kind of a life I wanted to live. And I had a challenge in my business life. In my business life, 
I was throwing away food daily because when you're in the event industry, when you're putting on beautiful events, food is about sharing and abundance and generosity. And I wanted to make sure that my clients had so much food that there was always left over because that was the sign of a good event. And so I had this problem. There was food and for years I was just throwing it away and throwing it away and then I realized this is just untenable. And one particular event triggered that and then I just started rogue rescuing food and delivering it and it, with my boys and it just seemed like, wow, that was pretty cool. But then I was, you know, sometimes you have an idea, but you don't even realize that it is the idea or you don't realize the significance of that idea until you get galvanized into action or triggered into action. And that was my visit to South Africa. I hadn't been back since apartheid and visiting a girlfriend and just hearing her experience and living through that just made me realize that actually my challenge I could do more with and that mm. was what if I rescued more food and deliver it to more people mm. and I guess 155 million meals later it wasn't such a bad idea. Why don't I just go back just just briefly touch on going back to South Africa because I was born here but my parents are Lebanese yeah. Lebanese Australians and they came out in the 50s yeah and I've gone back and I, I just want your view on this because even though I was born and raised here, there is affinity that I have with that country that is, I feel that it's part of who I am, of how I've made of, and when I see the Lebanese people in Lebanon, I feel that they're my people, even though I grew up here. Yeah, and it's funny because they hear you open your mouth and you're clearly not them. Exactly. <laughs> and now I go back, if, if ever I'm back and... Apparently, I sound Australian, although clearly ex-South Africans could hear, you know, my accent. There's no doubt, you know, the, the earth, the smell. I chose to leave South Africa. It's not my country anymore. This is my home. But there's no doubt that there is a very strong affinity with that country. Were you emotional when oh, you first went back? Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely, because, it, you know, it, even though I'd left, it was the child, it was my childhood country, you know, yeah. all those formative experiences. Absolutely, happened. yeah. It's very, it's, it certainly holds a, a special place in my heart, but because of the political situation, I closed it off. So I, I closed it off and sealed it and gave it away. But having started South Africa Harvest, that was incredibly important to me. And that's the reason, because... It's one thing giving back here, which is where I live. It's my country. It's what I wanted to do. But I always had this hankering to make sure that in that country that has so much need, if I could give back in any way. And so it's very precious for me that South Africa Harvest is now. Yeah. Now, I want to talk a little bit about putting your life onto paper, if you like, telling your story. Yeah. Um, because it's a big deal in a way, isn't it? The reflection, the thinking about the life that you've lived. And, you know, I haven't done it, so I don't, 
I want to, I want your take on it. But you know, sometimes you write a CV, for instance, you write in your, your resume, totally. and yeah, you put it all on paper, and you think, oh wow, who's that? That's impressive. Like you hadn't thought about all those things that brought you to where you are now. Yeah. Tell me about the process of writing your story. Did you feel that? Oh my goodness! So first of all, what's extraordinary? You 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 do need. To, I must acknowledge is that. I wrote this book with my daughter-in-law. Now, first of all, can you imagine writing a book with your daughter-in-law? If you'd have, you know, it was never again in my intent to write a book, not to mention to have my daughter-in-law really write it. She interviewed me, then she'd write it, then I'd look at it, and then we'd make changes. But she scribed and she did the writing. And she definitely directed and because and pushed and pulled things out of me that I don't know that I'd have ever been able to do on my own. And it's an extraordinary thing. And I kept saying, this is so boring. And who's going to read this? And why would anybody want to know anything about my story? And she had to shut me up so many times and say, listen, we're on this journey. Stop questioning about why or whatever. So it is, it's very confronting. And you know, in this book, I am more vulnerable than I have ever been in my life. You know, you're I'm, vulnerable in front of an audience that's going to read it, but also in front of your daughter-in-law, where you're going to have to say a lot of deep. Well, you have said a lot of deep personal things. So, absolutely. it so is in front a journey. Of my family, my beloved, the people who you want to respect you. And yes, I've done a million talks in the last seventeen years. But I've chosen what I've said. It's been very surface-driven, although authentic and real. I've shared it from a very real place. But I could choose very much which stories I put in and which I didn't. And once I embarked on this book, it was either doing it right and getting it right and being honest, or there was not really much point in doing this book. And I... Yeah, she pushed me to saying, we're doing this. So you've got an extraordinary story. And and she felt that she'd been, that she was this mouthpiece, that the universe brought her to bringing this story to life. So it's been a very precious process. Well, thank her from me <laughs> because we need this book. We need to read this book. Thank you. Uh, the book is called uh, Repurposed Life. Ronnie Khan, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for taking the time and I hope that everybody enjoys the book and gets something out of it. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audio books are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow 
and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.